Hello and welcome to another episode of All for Nature. And thanks for listening. I'm your host, Michelle Bonebreak, and I'm an outdoor educator here at Shaw Nature Reserve. I'm so glad you've joined us today because I'm really looking forward to sharing this episode's topic with you. But first, just a reminder, at the end of the episode, we will give you an update on some of our featured events and upcoming classes at the Nature Reserve. So be sure and stay tuned for that. So let's get into it. If you tuned in last month, you heard my discussion with Aaron Goss. We talked all about native plants and the role we ourselves can play in supporting the plants and animals who live near us in the areas we help maintain, for example, in our gardens and neighborhoods. And we talked about how small actions we take as individuals can have a larger ripple effect throughout a community. It was a great chat, so if you haven't heard it yet, be sure to go back and give it a listen. This month, we're going to continue on the theme of caretaking the land, but zoom way out and broaden our scope quite a bit. Imagine you're soaring way up in the air with a bird's eye view of Shaw Nature Reserve, because today we're going to talk broadly about what ecosystems are and the efforts by our restoration team here at the Nature Reserve to support healthy ecosystems on a scale larger than most of us have at our homes. We'll also touch on the history of land management, why the land needs management at all, what this sort of work looks like today at Shaw Nature Reserve, and even how you can get involved. To help us understand all of this, I've invited Mike Saxton to join us. Mike is the manager of ecological restoration and land stewardship here at Shaw Nature Reserve. Welcome, Mike. Happy to be here. Okay, manager of ecological restoration and land stewardship is a mouthful. It would be great if you would explain to us what that means and tell us a little about your background, such as how did you become interested in this work and how did you find your way here? Sure. So uh, kind of the two parts of the title, ecological restoration and land stewardship, uh, some of our lands need active ecological restoration, right? They're a little bit uh, degraded, which means they don't have the level of native biodiversity that we want, and we need to be actively working in those areas uh, to promote that biodiversity. Land stewardship is a little bit different. We have some really high-quality, intact, uh, healthy, natural communities that don't need to be restored, but they need to be thoughtfully managed. So that's a little bit more where the land stewardship uh, aspect of my position comes into play. Uh, how I arrived here, um, so I've been at the Nature Reserve uh, for seven years at this point, moved down from the Chicago area. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in history, a minor in philosophy, and a minor in theology. Right? So folks usually say, that doesn't sound anything natural areas man- uh, related. How, how, did this, how did this come to pass? Now, of course, I would um, argue that everything that we do in terms of land management, we have to take in the historical context of, of how we've used the land. Uh, we have to think about where the land is going, right? From a philosophical and theological standpoint, it's not a hard, um, it's not a stretch to see how uh, we need to be stewards of the land and take care of the land and what obligation we have to the land. Um, so that it's, that's not much of a stretch. But, but I did go out to get a Master of Science degree in biological uh, geography. So I did my, uh, my, I did my thesis research on Oak Savannah uh, restoration in Northern Illinois. So it is nice. I've got one foot firmly rooted in the sciences and one foot firmly rooted in the humanities. Very cool. What an interesting background, Mike. Thank you. I think it's always a good idea to start with a common 
foundation of terminology. In talking about what ecological restoration means, let's start with the idea of an ecosystem. Um, In my day-to-day duties, I work mostly with school-age students. With our student learners, we define an ecosystem as all the living and non-living things interacting in a specific area. And to clarify that, when we say non-living, we mean it has never lived. So as an example, when the sun shines on our face and we feel warmth, that's the non-living sun interacting with us as living humans to warm our skin. And these sorts of interactions are taking place all the time between all these different parts of an ecosystem. Thinking of that definition and how it would be applied to your work, do you think it's good as it stands or would you add or change anything about that definition? Well, I think as you stated it, it's, it's pretty clear, and I think you did a, a fine job, definitely. Uh, I think the only aspect that I would emphasize um, in terms of kind of how it relates to my day-to-day operation is it's important to emphasize the complexity of the ecosystems and how interconnected and interrelated and uh, just really the complexity of these communities. Um, we, um, through our kind of our, our hubris, right? We've gotten ourselves into a lot of challenges. We've done things to the landscape. We thought we were going to have these impacts. We thought we were doing the right thing. We thought, oh, we can build a dam here. Oh, we can do this there. And because we've tried to harness and, and control nature, we've gotten ourselves into trouble, right? So it's really important for us to understand how complex these systems are and to recognize what we don't know about them. And and we want to continue uh, to, to learn. So I think... Uh, like I said, your, your definition is, is a pretty solid one, but I would just emphasize how, how complex these systems are and how uh, interconnected uh, all of that web of life can be. Sure. Okay. Thank you. So now that we've defined what an ecosystem is, I think it's not a giant leap to explain that ecology is the study of ecosystems and how these living and non-living things are interacting, like we mentioned, within that ecosystem. So when I think then about the word restoration, I think of restoring something to a previous state or condition. But um, how would you describe ecological restoration and why is it so important? Yeah, for me, ecological restoration is does definitely include looking back, but we really are thinking about looking forward, right? So um, definitely not trying to recreate an arbitrary date. One might say, okay, you know, 1491, is that what you're restoring to? Or is it pre-settlement Missouri? Is that what you're trying to restore to? And, and, and it's not. I mean, we're thinking about the restoration aspect as uh, really, we're managing for ecosystem health, right? We want our natural areas to be as healthy as possible. And the metric by which we kind of gauge health, a lot of times, is native species richness. So we focus on the plant communities, right? So the more diverse your plants are, the more diverse your insects are going to be, the wider array of birds are going to support, and on and on. Um, so that's really where we think about ecosystem health, is that native species richness. Now, in keeping with that health metaphor, the health way of thinking about it, um, you know, we do things like prescribe fire, right? Like we prescribe cures, we prescribe things that we're trying to do, do to the land to uh, emphasize and, and bolster that native biodiversity. Uh, we also do a lot of things with invasive species management. And I think it's really helpful for us to think about um, these non-native, sometimes problematic plants as being either malignant or benign, right? And so for us, 
here in Missouri, we have 3,000 species of plants. 2,000 of them are native. 1,000 of those are not native plants, right? But it's only about less than 2% of those 1,000 non-native species that are actually problematic plants, ones that we have to be concerned about. Um, an example would be a dandelion, right? Occurs in the crack of a sidewalk, will not move into a prairie and take over the prairie and push out all of our native biodiversity, right? So we would say in this context that a dandelion is rather benign, right? But something that I think most listeners would be able to recognize at this point is something like bush honeysuckle, right? So um, definitely not benign, uh, rather malignant, right? It will move into a woodland, it'll outcompete our native flora, it'll push them out and, and really change the system altogether. So again, in thinking about ecological restoration, we're focusing on that ecosystem health, we're defining health as native species richness, and we're uh, really trying to just bolster native species uh, diversity, which will kind of keep those those systems healthy. So, okay. So if I'm understanding you correctly, what I'm hearing is that restoration in this sense is not about restoring the land to a particular point in time, so much as it's about restoring the land to a state of richer biodiversity that has been lost. And I, that's a really important clarification. So thank you. Um, so how long have people been managing the land and what has that looked like over time? So in terms of how long have we been managing the land, uh, I mean, humans started to, to do agriculture maybe 10,000 years ago. We have sufficient evidence of that, right? And almost immediately, uh, they were using tools like irrigation, right? Manipulating water, um, uh, manipulating how water would flow across the landscape, capturing that resource to, to irrigate their crops. Uh, so, I mean, those are some really early examples of how the landscape was changing because of human uh, intervention. Um, more locally here in this part of the world, uh, we know that the indigenous people who lived here uh, were using fire very much as a tool, right? So uh, how do we mean that they were using it as a tool? Uh, a thing to keep in mind, the, the indigenous populations here were relying on the natural world for food, medicine, fibers, dyes, uh, of that, you know, everything needed to come within a walking distance of where where they were living, right? And they knew that certain plants would flower more if they were burned. Certain plants would flower less. Things along those lines. We see that. We understand that. And we're not nearly connected, of course, as as people who uh, lived and, and and breathed it day in and day out. But uh, yeah, so so the indigenous people knew that fire could uh, they could manage their vegetation, manage their native flora with fr fire frequency and fire intensity, right? But also uh, on a larger context is we know that bison uh, really prefer fresh, green, lush growth, right? They like that new green growth. They don't like the fibrous, stocky, kind of tough, uh, six-month-old, you know, uh, grasses. So the herds follow fire. After fire goes through, the prairies, you know, kind of uh, green up and the herds like that. And, and, and human beings living in this part of the world understood that they knew that they could manipulate the, the land, the vegetation of the landscape, which would in turn uh, attract uh, the bison herds. And those are just a couple of small examples. So people were caring for and managing land in what is now the United States for a very long time relatively speaking, at least in terms of time that most of us understand. So what happened? What disrupted our ecosystems and caused a need for the restoration work you're doing today? 
There are many, many things that have changed uh, over the course of the last few centuries, um, and they all kind of compound and complicate things, especially when taken as a whole. Um, one of the primary ones is, is fire suppression, right? So fire used to be an extremely natural part of this landscape. Fires were burning um, at different frequencies and on long time scales, right? So you get 100 wet years, a little bit less fire. 100 dry years, a little bit more fire. You could have a dry you know, millennia where there's a thousand years that are just drier and there's more fire. So, you know, there's no specific, oh, we should have fire every two years or every three years, right? I mean, it, it should, we, we would anticipate having fire on the landscape in this part of the world um, every three, five, ten years, generally. I mean, again, these are very general things. Um, other things that have changed, right, in addition to fire suppression, taking this very natural process off the landscape, we've lost um, some of the, the keystone and apex predators from the landscape. So some of the keystone species, something like a bison that has all these cascading effects, right? So a bison, a uh, herd of bison come into an area, they graze down the grass to a very short, uh, to a very short stature, and that opening creates cascading effects down the line. So those that now open sunny spot is where lizards might go to, to warm themselves, where something like the prairie chickens will do um, their mating ritual dances and have their booming grounds, right? So that's kind of what that cascading effect can be of, of a keystone species, something like a beaver, right? A beaver comes in, creates a dam, has this water backup, changes the flora, changes what you know, habitat for ducks and things like that, right? So that's an example of how a, a species can be a keystone species. Um, and something like an apex predator, right? We've lost, um, we had wolves here in this part of the world. We had wolves at the nature reserve wow. in the 1940s. Okay. It's documented wow. in the, in, in the uh, Missouri Botanical Garden uh, bulletin. Um, they had the state mammologist out um, from the Missouri Department of Conservation after they had um, cold a couple of the of, of the wolves and they were positively identified so um, again cascading effects that lose an apex predator can have you end up with an overpopulation of uh, of these meso um, mammals right raccoons possums um, you know even small rodents I mean again you take a, a, a big predator off the landscape and you end up with these cascading down down um, downward effects right uh, in addition to losing some of those species we've uh, on the bigger scale we've converted a lot of our native habitats into agricultural uh, land use right grazing pasturing animals uh, row crop agriculture so we've uh, just completely converted those we've had urban sprawl we've had fragmentation created by uh, uh, construction of roads um Additionally, we've got invasive species. I mean, that is a big, big change on the landscape that's really forced us to uh, be thinking about ecological restoration, right? Uh, we've altered the hydrology. Uh, we have uh, changed our rivers. We've changed. We've dammed our rivers. We've straightened our rivers. We've made the sponge-like surrounding landscape our prairies, which can take in a ton of water. We've converted them to parking lots in some cases, right? So we've, we've really altered the hydrology. So taken together, fire suppression, invasive species, altered hydrology, uh, landscape conversion. Um, there is a huge need right now to conserve the biodiversity that we have in our intact natural communities, and then to take some of those degraded areas and enhance their uh, their richness and their 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 value as natural communities and habitats. But then also, we can restore areas like fully. You can take a row crop field, and you can not just take a degraded woodland and enhance it, but you can take something like a row crop field and recreate uh, a, a functioning ecosystem out of that. Fascinating. 
All right. So it sounds like you're working against a lot of adverse factors in your efforts to restore the native ecosystems here at the nature reserve. And I'm betting nobody handed you an instruction manual to the earth. So how does your team make decisions about what you do? Tell us about the resources you use. Sure. So they're being being a student of history, right? Um, it, it does help, as I, as I stated earlier, we have to think about this in a historical context, right? So um, some of the tools that we use, right? We've got these very early, early um, traveler letters back east, these explorer notes, right? Frontiersmen sending letters back home saying, today we saw X number of bison. Today there was fire on the landscape. Today we encountered X number of indigenous people, right? That stuff is written down and we gives us just gives us a sense, like a, it's a single data point. Um, someone in, you know, Lewis and Clark's team might have said, oh, we were on the Missouri River and we saw a herd of 100 bison, right? That gives us some, some information to go off of, right? Uh, in the 1840s and 1850s, we have what are called the, uh, the public land surveys, which were run out of the general land office. A lot of times you'll hear them called GLO surveys or PLS surveys. Um, but this is that manifest destiny, go, go west, have surveys, have townships, have quarter, uh, have, have section lines, and have witness trees, and we have the notes like from this part of of the state, from you know, even as specific as the nature's. Or we have notes that would say at this um, section line, we saw this kind of um, tree composition, this kind of soil composition. Now they were thinking about resources. They were thinking like, how can we utilize the landscape? They weren't giving us a list of flora, right. but they were saying good timber, poor timber. Uh, rocky, rocky ground with scrubby oaks. And if, if we heard that, well, they are in this part of the world, they're seeing exposed rock and all the trees are stunted and scrubby, I'd say, well, that's a glade that's been getting burned, right? That's what that would sound like to me. So we have those kind of 1840s references that were written down. Um, the oldest aerials, aerial imagery that we have are from uh, the 1930s, right? So again, not trying to pick an arbitrary point in history, but thinking like, okay, what did the landscape look like in 1930? Then we can see the 1950 aerial, the 1970 aerial, and the 1990 aerial, and we can see how the areas are changing over time. So you might say, oh, well, that was an open field. Then it converted into a woodland. Then it looks like there was a clear cut. Then it looks like this happened. And again, it can help us better to understand kind of what we're seeing today when we're thinking about where we're going into the future. Um, but really the thing that we most rely on is what we would call reference communities. So a reference community is an intact natural area that is fairly high quality, that is not too terribly far away that we can look at and think, okay, that is a good model, right? So we could go um, down by Hillsborough as an example, Victoria Glades, right? So high quality, intact glade communities, and we can look at their composition. We can think about how, you know, what the fire frequency has been, how, you know, what management issues have they had. And we can learn from our colleagues. We can learn from the landscape. And we want to really kind of replicate some of that, you know, the high levels of biodiversity that we see on those fairly intact, fairly uh, rich and, and high quality uh, reference communities that are adjacent and, and fairly close by. That's a really interesting and diverse selection of resources that you use uh, as foundation for your decision making. And I'm sure that's necessary given the, the scope of your work. And speaking of which, I'd like to give our listeners a little perspective. So the nature reserve is pretty big relative to what most people in our area think of in terms of land size, uh, in that it's more than 2,400 acres. And when we in 
education try to describe that size to school groups, we ask them to picture a football field, which is technically a little larger than an acre, maybe, I think, but it still, it gives most people a pretty decent visual idea of what an acre looks like. Uh, Most people kind of have that idea in their head. They've seen a football field. Um, So if they can visualize one football field and then think about what 2,000 football fields look like, we tell them that's close to the size of Shaw Nature Reserve. So with all that in mind, how many people are on your team and how many acres of the nature reserve are in active management today? Sure. We have a team of five ecological restoration technicians. So these are folks who are out on the ground, um, well, most days, almost all day, every day, I should say. Um, they're the ones doing doing the day-to-day work, right? So they're um, killing weeds, they're picking seed, they're doing fire, they're doing uh, the the essential hard work, the hard field work that this uh, that is the nature of, of ecological restoration. Uh, addition, uh, in addition, we've got an ecological resource scientist, right, who is uh, assisting with with our technicians out in the field, but also uh, kind of coordinating the science and 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 helping us think through um, kind of our goals and objectives with our ecological restoration efforts. Um, myself as as the manager of the program, so that's five technicians, a scientist, and a manager for a total team of of about seven or so. Uh, and I think it's essential for us to mention that we've got a really dedicated uh, volunteer uh, core that we host workdays, three ecological restoration workdays each week, typically Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. And we've got volunteers who come out all winter long, but then they kind of stay out of the heat in the summer. Or we have people who are free in the summer and come out you know, every week in the summer, but then they get busy again in, in kind of the, the slower season, right? So we've got a great volunteer corps who are assisting us in all manners of, of our ecological restoration program. Uh, in terms of how many acres we're managing, so as you stated, the nature reserve is about 2,400 acres. And currently we're working, uh, as, as you put it, we're actively managing about 1,900 of our 2,400 acres. And when, when we say active management, we don't mean that those areas are pristine or fully restored. Active management means that we're working in those areas to bolster the native biodiversity. So typically that means invasive species control and uh, the use of fire. It might mean that we're adding native seed, which we typically do in most cases. But again, fire weeds and seeds, if we're doing that in an area, that means we're working and doing active management in those acres. Wow. Okay. So take us through what a, quote, typical year looks like for your team. And I know there's too much work probably to list here in detail. So maybe we can just give listeners a broad, high-level overview of what a year on the restoration team might look like. Sure. So our, our work is very cyclical, right? It's very seasonal. So it's very predictable, right? We do the same thing every spring as we do in the summer, as we do in the fall, right? So in that way, it's very predictable. However, every day is a little bit different. Uh, Every week, something new is flowering. Every week, something new is going to seed, right? So uh, our our days are pretty dynamic, even though it's pretty predictable about what's coming up next. So uh, if we want to just start in the winter, we spend most of the winter uh, cutting brush, right? Removing invasive uh, woody shrubs like honeysuckle and privet. Uh, during that true dormant season, we're doing a lot of our prescribed fire. Uh, so that is where we're prepping for fire, we're executing the fires. Uh, we're also doing a lot of chainsaw work, of course, which lends itself to that nice cold weather. Uh, July is not a time to be uh, running a chainsaw. Um, but once we come into the spring, um, 
we've got it's it's really we're not more we're not busier in the growing season uh, than we are in the dormant season. We've got a lot to do all the time, but the nature of of the tasks change in the growing season. So everything is very time defined. We have deadlines left and right, and how that is is we've got a very short window to collect seed. As an example, uh, a plant might be setting seed, and we can collect that seed for a week, or maybe it's a two-week period, right? So we've got, uh, over the course of the season, we're collecting seed from about 250 different native species of plants. And some of those will hold their seed for two, three, four weeks. Some things, uh, the first, you know, you come out on a Friday, it's like, well, it's not quite ready yet. And by the time we get back on Monday or Tuesday, the seed's blown away, right? So we have to we have to move really quickly there. Um, and also kind of our invasive species control. Um, we're managing about 40 different non-native invasive plants. So remember I said maybe less than 2% of our thousand non-native plants in Missouri are truly problematic plants. Um, they have treatment windows where we need to get in and get after them uh, and, and where it's easiest for us to find them. And so we have these, these short windows of time where we have to act really fast, right? So um, that's kind of what the growing season looks like. We start off um, in the spring. It's almost all weeds and just a little bit of seed. By the time we get to the summer, it's about 50-50 weeds and seeds. By the time we're getting into the fall, we've kind of transitioned into uh, mostly seeds and just a little bit of weeds. And then uh, we get into the, the fall fire season and brush season into the winter, back to our chainsaw work, and then it just starts all over again. So last month I was talking with Aaron about native plant horticulture, and we were talking about how that's become more popular. And of course, that oftentimes involves people saving back seed from their own plants, or perhaps even going and trying to collect them from public places. What in your mind are some of the ethical considerations surrounding seed collection? What would you say to folks who are interested in doing that? What are, what are some things they should be aware of? Yeah, so I think uh, I think it's great that people are um, getting into native plants and native native plant landscaping, and definitely thinking about ways to have this around their homes. And that's really great for for a number of reasons, right? We want people to appreciate uh, the natural world. We want them to create habitat for pollinators and all kinds of those things in their own backyards. Um, now it's really great because there there is. Um, a market out there. There are great seed vendors. There are a lot of native plant propagation companies that that are doing this work and helping uh, helping homeowners to to do this at home. Um, you know, here at the Nature Reserve, we have uh, you know a mission and an obligation, right, to be good stewards of this land and to to manage this thoughtfully and carefully, right. And we do need to be mindful of, of seed on our landscape, right. So as an ecological restoration team. Uh, we have goals and objectives, and we also have some rules of the road that we have to follow, right? So we try not to, we try not to collect too much of any given thing. We've got, got limits that we set for ourselves. Um, what we don't want to see is are, are people coming out here with their scissors and buckets and, and taking seed off our site for, for a number of reasons. Um, we're trying to keep that seed on site to be a resource, right, for our restoration efforts. We also want to keep it on site so that our, our native uh insects and birds and small mammals have the food and energy that they need. Um, we do at the Nature Reserve, we, we prohibit a uh, collection of, of all kinds. You can't come onto the Nature Reserve and collect mushrooms. Uh, you can't find a turtle and take it home with you. Um, and, and again, this is because we're trying to protect the resource and we're trying to be good stewards of the resource, right? So we want to leave, uh, leave all of these things here for other people to enjoy. 
Okay, I feel like we've just scratched the surface of the topics we've talked about so far, so hopefully we can dive deeper into some of those issues in future episodes. But right now, let's pivot a little and talk about your team's newest major restoration project at the Nature Reserve. Let's talk Wolf Run Grassland Restoration. First of all, what is the Wolf Run Grassland Project, and what is its history? Why did it need restoration? Sure. So it's really interesting. I was just reading this um, last week in the 1951 bulletin um, of the Missouri Botanical Garden. Uh, They described this kind of 120 acres of the Wolf Run Grassland Restoration Area as being, quote, wasted farmland. So uh, when when the Missouri Botanical Garden bought the land that would become uh, Shaw Nature Reserve in 1925, uh, it was... Th- about 1,300 acres of contiguous farms. It was five farms that, as they called it, were, were wasted ground, right? So in 1951, they were saying that this area, the Wolfram Grass and Restoration Area, um, they didn't really know what to do with it. It was starting to turn into a thicket of elm trees, and they knew they didn't want that. So they said, why don't we convert this area to bluegrass? So it, was a, it, was a, it was a farm field that they left fallow, it started converting itself into an elm thicket of blackberries and elms, it said. And then they said, well, we're going to lose this. We should turn it into bluegrass, and we should run cattle on it. So they did that for, uh, for a while. And then by about 1960, they said, okay, we're just going to let nature take its course. We're going to leave this area fallow, and, and we'll just let it go. And when you just let an area go, it doesn't just transition into a diverse, rich, beautiful glade or a nice, diverse prairie or some picturesque oak hickory woodland. Um, it, it, in a, especially in the context that we've talked about with, with, where we don't have fire on the landscape, where everything's fragmented and where, where we have invasive species running amok, um, these 120 acres transition not into a healthy oak hickory woodland, but into a thicket of cedar, honeysuckle, privet, buckthorn, various other non-native kind of undesirable uh, problematic plants, and really lost some of its ecological value, right? So we looked at this 120 acres and we thought, geez, what what do we do here? And we looked back through the history. We understood how it had changed from a farm field into a bluegrass field, into a, uh, a pasture, into a thicket of invasives. And we had to we we took a fairly drastic step of removing uh, 120 acres of of non-native plants and and pretty undesirable vegetation and we've kind of started off this process as what will be a, a fairly lengthy process of kind of helping this ecosystem recover when making the decisions you made to restore this area what influenced your decision to restore it as a um well what i what i keep seeing when i'm reading about it is they're calling it a savanna so uh, explain that sure so uh if people are familiar with the nature reserve they know this they've probably seen this area before it used to be very densely treed Right. And we've removed a lot of trees. Right. And I know some people have a kind of a knee jerk reaction to that. Um, but I think what's important to understand is we retained uh, we walked we walked every inch of this 120 acres. We marked every white oak, every black oak, red oak, shagbark hickory, uh, various other uh, trees were kept too. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trees were retained. This was by no stretch of the imagination, a clear cut or anything along those lines. Um and so when you look out on the landscape, what you end up seeing 
uh, is this kind of patchy mosaic of, of varied habitat types, right? So you might see an area that was a actual 10-acre block of cedars. Nothing but cedars in a 10-acre block. And that is going to be a nice open prairie at this point, right? It will, it will uh, turn into a nice prairie. But then that kind of that hilltop will transition down into a wooded draw, will transition upslope into kind of a spacious, uh, spaced-out tree, oak hickory, savanna. Then you'll get a few more trees, and it turns into an, uh, kind of an open oak woodland. Then you'll get another area that's a wooded draw that transitions up into a prairie. So instead of kind of having this monoculture, monotypic uh, habitat type, it ends up being savannas and woodlands and prairies and wooded draws all kind of complementing, complementing each other and kind of um, making the landscape feel very open. You can see this rolling topography through the area, uh, which is really nice. I mean, before you had no sense of what the landscape was doing. Um, and now we see this gently rolling topography, these spaced out trees, and you can really see at this point the direction that this restoration project is headed. Just how, how big is this project? Compare it to, uh, I know our listeners are often a little more familiar with the botanical garden downtown. When we have school groups out and we ask them to raise their hand if they're you know, familiar with Shaw Nature Reserve versus familiar with the garden downtown, they're generally a little more familiar with downtown. So how big is the Wolf Run Grassland Restoration? Yeah, so the, the main... Uh, botanical garden the main campus as we call it uh, in st louis is about 90 acres this project is about 120 acres so it's, it is it's a fairly large and ambitious uh, project and i think one thing that's important for us to recognize is we have a plan that we put together back in 2016 of how we were going to bring all 2400 acres of the nature reserve into active management and again that means trying to enhance the native biodiversity over all 2,400 acres. At the time, in 2016, we were only working in about 1,400 of our 2,400 acres. So someone might say, well, what about the other 1,000 acres? What's happening in those? And the answer was, for native biodiversity, nothing. Like, we were not working in those areas. And so now we're up to about 1,900 acres uh, that we're working in. And over the course of the next um, seven years, we're going to bring in uh, the remaining 500 acres. And then, again, that doesn't mean that they're fully restored and pristine. It means that we're actively working in those areas. So taking on this 120-acre uh, wolf-run grassland restoration project, um, is, it's, it's, a, it's a bold project. It's a big project. But it's, it's part of our long-term uh, kind of strategic plan to bring all 2,400 acres of the nature reserve into active management by the year 2030. And I, I think it's important uh, for visitors to understand that it is, in fact, a process, right? So they shouldn't expect to go out to Wolf Run next spring and think, oh, look at this beautiful space. <laughs> it, it might not quite look like they expect for a while. So in terms of a timeline, what might visitors expect to see over the next several months or even years as they come out to visit and check out the project? Uh, so this winter, we're planting 40 acres of prairie. 40 of the 120 acres will be planted this year, and then uh, 40 the next year, and 40 the next year. Um, so you know, over the course of the next three years, 120 acres of planted prairie, which is really great. Um, now, we have a saying in kind of ecological restoration that, especially when you're planting prairie, um, year one, it sleeps, right? So we're going to plant the seed this winter. Next year... It's going to be sleeping. And what that means is our native plants are there. They've germinated. They've sprouted up. They're small. 
and they're putting all of their energy below ground. Right. So that first year, what you end up seeing, the the bulk of the biomass that you're seeing are kind of annual plants that like disturbance that aren't kind of high value uh, habitat species, but they're what's kind of filling the niche, filling the void. Our native plants are there though. They're putting all the resources underground into the root system. Year two, it creeps. So what that means is in its second growing season, you start to see native plants. They're, they're there, they're taller, they're more, they're more robust. Some of them are flowering. Uh, the kind of abundance and thickness of some of those disturbance-driven annual uh, low-diversity weeds that we're kind of seeing, they're diminished as our native, native plants are growing more and more. By year three, it leaps. There's a big change that happens in year three. Our native plants are now on their third season. They've got a lot of roots. And what that means is those kind of disturbance-driven annuals, uh, they can't compete. So from a competition standpoint, they drop out and your native plants have kind of flipped the script on them. So again, year one, it sleeps. Year two, it creeps. And year three, it leaps. All right, Mike. What's the best part of your job? Well, I think the best part of my job is is knowing that the work that we're doing, uh, knowing how important it is, right? So um, we all know we're in the middle of a climate crisis, right? And I think what we tend to appreciate a little bit less is is the nature of kind of the biodiversity crisis that we're uh, that the landscape and the world is going through, right? So when we're out there every day uh, doing work and taking action, um, kind of choosing action over apathy, right? It, it it's rewarding to see our work translate directly into uh, benefits for the natural world, right? So we can go into an area that's just nothing but honeysuckle. We can put in a lot of good, hard work into it. We can remove all those non-native plants. We can fill the area with our native seed, and we can watch the ecosystem recover. And in that first year, you see insects, you see reptiles, amphibians, birds. You see all of these species, all these critters that are needing habitat, that are scrambling for it, and we're creating that habitat, and we're seeing the natural areas and the natural world respond. And it's a very rewarding thing to experience, and I think that's probably the the best part about doing this work. Awesome. Okay, couple of questions on behalf of listeners who might be interested in learning more about your work and maybe even joining in on the efforts you're making here. So you mentioned you have quite a few volunteers helping you out with restoration work. How might interested listeners tie into those restoration efforts through volunteering? Sure. So anyone who wants to learn more about our volunteer program, uh, you can email restoration at mobot, M-O-B-O-T dot org. Uh, that's a good way to learn a little bit more. Um, we host work days three days a week, Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays. Uh, those work days are open to the public. They're posted on the Missouri, Bota- uh, Missouri Botanical Gardens website, right? There's a volunteer tab. It's pretty easy to find. Uh, you have to be a registered volunteer and you have to sign up for the work days so we know how many people to uh, to expect. But um, yeah, the work, it's... it's um, it's kind of seasonally based, right? Right now we're, we're doing almost nothing but seed collection. Uh, so every week, like I said, something new is flowering, something new is going to seed. Uh, so people who come out to volunteer get to experience all that uh, diversity of, of native plants out there. And then, you know, once fall kind of starts transitioning into the winter months, into the dormant season, we'll be uh, cutting brush, getting rid of honeysuckle. Okay, so what advice would you give to those who maybe want to pursue a career in ecological restoration? Uh, so what I'd recommend to, to people who are interested is uh, 
I think it's a, there are a few things to understand about the work, right? I mean, we work outside all year round in the heat of the summer and the cold of the winter. It's good, hardy physical work, right? I mean, it's nothing terribly intense, but it you know it's, we're on our feet all day doing doing hard work, and uh, you have to you have to be in it for that. That's for sure. Uh, that's why I think volunteering is great, right? I mean, you can come out once or twice or ten times. You could come out every week, but you can really kind of uh, get your get your hands dirty. Um, dip your toe in the water, see what it's like, talk to other people who are, who are doing the work. Um, so that, that's one way is definitely, uh, getting your, uh, getting in on a couple of these volunteer opportunities. Uh, another way to get involved is, I mean, there, this work is expanding, right? There are a lot more organizations and agencies and municipalities doing ecological restoration. Uh, the job market is, um, you know, there, there's attention being paid to this work. The, um, so that's encouraging. Uh, organizations like the Nature Conservancy or Audubon or AmeriCorps, or Green Corps, there are fairly uh, numerous ways that you can get involved in kind of seasonal work, right? So these are kind of short-term, um, you know, three, four, five-month gigs that are fairly entry-level, right? And so there are a lot of good organizations and agencies out there that are hiring uh, folks at, at the entry level to do this kind of work. Okay, Mike, one more question. This one's just a little more personal. In your work, you've been all over the nature reserve, and I think it's safe to say you're pretty familiar with most of it. So I know our listeners want to know, what is your favorite place to be in nature at Shaw Nature Reserve? Yeah, I think probably one of the most special places that we have uh, are the areas kind of around the trailhouse. And I think why I say that is we can go, when you go from the parking lot of the trailhouse to the Crescent Knoll uh, Glade Overlook, you walk through, uh, you know, through a kind of a, an open Oak Hickory woodland. You come out to this glade, uh, this glade community where you see all these beautiful prairie plants and you end up with a, a great vista uh, overlooking the Merrimack River bottom. So just in that uh, 50-yard walk from the parking lot to the Glade Overlook, you get to see and experience kind of three different uh, distinct habitat types in that short amount of time. Well, thank you so much, Mike, for coming out to visit with us today. It's been great learning more about the work of the restoration team here at the Nature Reserve, and I'm sure our listeners are looking forward to hearing more from you in the future. So I hope this wasn't too painful and that you'll join us again sometime. Okay, listeners, I hope you enjoyed that discussion and maybe learned a little more about the great work our restoration team and volunteers are doing here at the Nature Reserve and also why this work is so crucial to the health of the natural world. Speaking of the natural world, the weather is finally cooling enough that it is a pleasure to be outdoors. The Nature Reserve offers so many ways to enjoy nature, and we invite you to come out and enjoy it with us. Here are a few upcoming events, and side note for our listeners from the future, these dates are all in 2023. First, the weather this weekend, September 16th and 17th, looks absolutely gorgeous, and believe it or not, there is still room to join the canopy climbs happening Saturday and Sunday at the Nature Reserve. Adults and families with children ages 8 and older are invited to attend this two-hour course designed for first-time climbers, so don't be afraid to try. 
learn all about recreational tree climbing, and explore different parts of the tree canopy. Go online or call to register today. We'll drop a link to our upcoming events in the show notes. Just follow that link and scroll down a bit to find these classes. While you're there, don't forget to register for the Leaves and Seeds Fall Fun Run 5K taking place at the Nature Reserve on October 21st. Now, we know it's called a run, but I want to make it clear you are welcome to move at your own pace, whatever that is, through the course. So make a day of it, bring your friends out, and take in the gorgeous fall color, and you get a t-shirt. Just know that if you want to pick your preferred size, you do need to register by September 21st. Coming up the first weekend of November, that's November 4th and 5th, is our annual art show. Local artists will have their work on display at the historic cabins of the Dana Brown Overnight Center. Stay tuned to our social media in October for more information on how you can attend the art show and also help us close out the year in December with one of my favorite events, the Whitmire Wonderlights. Folks, if you had a good time listening today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and tell everyone you know about us. Check out our show notes, drop us a line at snrinfo at mobot.org and tell us what you think. Even better, come say hi in person if you can and let the Visitor Center team know you heard about us here. I can't wait to bring you more information education, and entertainment directly from Shaw Nature Reserve. Watch for new episodes every month or so. Until then, we will see you on the trail.